part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. When approaching sermon series and then specific sermons within a series, there's always uh, what I would call some foundational Christian beliefs. Uh, we're building up knowledge. We're building up ability in those times to, to equip us just to have kind of the foundations of belief. There's other ones that I think are uh, maturing ones that are, we've already established a, a foundation in Christ and our walk in Christ, and now we're maturing uh, our lives. Where would I put this sermon series? Well, I think that it's both foundational because I think it's one of those that unless you get this right, you're never going to find the compulsion in your heart and your mind to totally surrender. So in one way, it's a foundational, and yet the other way, I think this is what leads to a mature Christian life. It's probably one of the most important series that I could preach. If I was just going off into a distant land and I wanted to preach to a church that had followers of Christ and and people that wanted to walk in Christ, I I would preach this foundational and yet maturing series because I think it plays out such a vital role that when we answer these things right, it equips us, it allows us at that point of our life to truly come to a place of surrender that is authentic as opposed to what we were talking about two weeks ago when we sing something like, I surrender all, and yet there's a certain amount of friction in that because we know, well, no, we really didn't surrender all. We surrendered a lot, maybe more than my brother or my sister, but but not all. So I invite you again to visit what we saw last week. You, you can keep your, your hand right there on Matthew 16. But we began last week with this somewhat familiar invitation and yet challenging um, verse from Christ, Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, that is, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Two weeks ago, we began to, to see what does that really look like? What does that feel like when Monday at 4.30 or 5 when the alarm goes off in the morning as you equip yourself for work, what does that mean as you start your day? When it's 2.30 in the afternoon and you're in the midst of business or whatever your daily endeavors are, what does this mean to take up your cross and to follow Christ? What does it look like in real life? And how will we know if we're really doing it? That's what I really would love for us to be able to go to the Scripture and, and figure this out. Now, to catch this up, I'm going to do a quick review in case you weren't here two weeks ago and because it has been two weeks since I had to miss last week. Let me give you three things that we tried to establish from the Word of God in that first week. The first thing is that this invitation, this challenge from Christ, actually is comprised of three parts. Deny yourselves. We're going to talk much more about that next week. Take up your cross. Something has to die. Next week we're going to look at three things in the life of a Christian that has to die for this maturity to really kind of take hold and and take place and follow me. So it's not just this picture of us with a cross daily, but but it's it's compounded there by denying ourselves, taking up our cross. Something has to die, and we get to follow Christ. 
And we also established, the second point that we established last time, was that we are not natural surrenders. We want to win. We see surrender as losing. We see it as defeating. And we don't have that within us. I'm a big Braves fan. And so a a lot of baseball illustrations. And if you've watched the last couple games, uh, three or four games, there's been times that they've been down quite a bit. They were down four or nothing last night. One, six, five. Why? Because number one, they're a pretty good team. Number two, uh, Phillies have a terrible bullpen. Number three, <laughs> they don't quit. You know, they're, they're getting, yeah, they're getting paid millions of dollars, but they have this instinct not to quit until there's three outs in the bottom of the ninth. And, and we share that in our human nature. And we talked a lot about that, that, you know, you don't have to teach, teach a child to kind of go their own rebellious way. They just do that. If anything, what you're trying to do is kind of getting them to surrender to what you think is a more mature way. And so we see also that in this uh, redefining surrender, since he's called us to surrender and to die, that, that we have to redefine it because our natural in, you know, definition of that is, is one of losing and yet Christ said this is actually the way to victory. In fact, in Luke 9.24 last week, or two weeks ago, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He said actually by surrendering, by dying, you actually start living. And then there's the third point that we had two weeks ago. And that is, if we have to redefine surrender, it has to start where Christ started it. Who do you say that I am? You will never, as a Christian, be able to define surrender properly until you define Christ properly. When we see him as Messiah, when we see him as the son of the living God, when we see him as the savior of the world, when we see him in all his majesty, then we have the ability to start thinking properly about surrendering to him. Surrendering to someone who does not have our own will, our own uh, good, our own future in mind. We won't do it. A natural bent against that. But if we see the Messiah and all that Christ is, and the gift of God that he is, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I still have this natural bent, but this is a man, this is a Savior, and this is God's answer to my dilemma, and I can put my faith and my trust in it. And that's where Christian surrender begins. Today we go to uh, Luke And Luke also points out that Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? In fact, Luke 9, 18, Jesus asked his disciples, who do, who do people ask that, you know, say that I am? And we saw that in math, uh, a a couple weeks in in Luke. We see that again in Matthew. Um, and when we begin to see these, what we call the harmony of the gospels, the same story being told by multiple, sometimes as many as the four different gospel writers, it brings an ad, uh, a perspective to us that just deepens. I was talking to some of the praise team before, and what does harmony do? It, it deepens. Somebody can sing a solo, and it can be beautiful, but it, you know, have you ever heard a really good harmony? And all of a sudden it's like, man, I really appreciate it, because it adds what? Depth to it. And when we get the harmony of the Gospels, that is, we get to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we see four different perspectives, it gives us a depth sometimes that we didn't see just from one perspective. So here's what we saw a couple weeks ago in Luke 9, 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
And if you get that, you get the whole first sermon. If you really grasp that, Jesus, you are the Christ of God. You are God's answer to my problem. You're not just a Messiah, you are the Messiah. You're not just kind of one aspect of religious thought. You are the center and the foundation of all religious hope. Do you see that? Until we come to that place and really get Jesus right, we can't get the Christian life right. It's impossible. It will become moralistic, and the aim will be just to be as moral as we can. And you can say, well, that's not all bad. No, it's not all bad, but it's not the aim of the Christian life. Christ never said, okay, what I really want you to do is get at least a 90 or above in your morality test. No, he said, I want you to follow me. As we'll see next week, he said, I want you to have this mind in you, which is in Christ Jesus. And so as hard as surrender is, it just is not going to consistently happen in our lives until we see Jesus as authority, as we see him in his majesty, as we see him as God's Messiah. We will never come to the place whereas Matthew sixteen sixteen says now, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So open your Bibles again to, to Matthew. We're going to again look at the harmony of this. Um, some writers like Mark is a very brief gospel. And when you break down Mark, he, he takes a whole bunch of the events of the first two and a half years of Jesus' life, and he says them in just a couple chapters. Why? Because he is so anxious to get to the cross. That's Mark's gospel. He just wants to get to the cross. And so he rushes through kind of the first two and a half years of Jesus' life so he can get to that last half year, especially the Passion Week. And every gospel writer, God-ordained, in this case Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, a purpose for the gospel. They told the same story oftentimes. And yet when we compare what they said, we see different levels of intensity. And we begin to get the full flavor of what God wants us to know. So look, Matthew 16, verse 15 and 16. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you just thought about Luke's writing, you would say, Well, isn't that just about the same exact thing? It is. It's just a couple words different. And yet, where Luke then went on and began to talk about the kingdom and kingdom life and this invitation to deny yourself, to take of your cross daily, and to follow him. Before that happens, Matthew actually adds something that Luke doesn't. This is the beauty of the harmony of the Gospels. For example, and please do not take this as a cut whatsoever of my lovely wife, but if you asked me how my day was, it's going to be done in about four words. If you ask my wife how her day was, you're good to get it down to four paragraphs. Now, I do not mean that in a bad way. I just mean, I'm going to be, here's the story. It's good. She's going to tell you, well, this happened, this happened, and then this happened, and then this was really funny. Da, da. And she's just going to do it in vivid color. I'm a guy. The eight original Crayola crowns colors, sufficient for me. My wife, the 164 set. This is what God does. There's some gospels that say, okay, here it is, in a nutshell. 
And then there's others that he says, okay, I inspire you to write on this deeper level so that all of a sudden you add a fuchsia and a periwinkle and this color that is not included in the basics. This is the beauty of the harmony of the Gospels. And this is what Matthew begins to reveal that Luke didn't because he had a different purpose. Matthew 16 17. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, why didn't Luke write that? Why didn't he include that in his gospel? Because he wasn't inspired to do so. But what does this tell us? First of all, this is really, really significant. Jesus says that Peter's answer came from a spiritual understanding from God and not from human intellect. There's things in your life that you get from human intellect because you're smart people. You go to school and you try to learn things. Why? So that you can learn and train this brain to think critically, to think logically. And so there's a lot of us that as we go through our day, would you say that there's a lot of us that we just react intelligently, hopefully, logically, hopefully, and we respond to the intellect of the things around us. But would you also say for the Christian that there's a spiritual world out there and that there's a spiritual influence in our lives? And so we as Christians, we go out and we act logically. Hopefully we act responsibly to the things and the natural laws of the world that God has established. It's not that those are void of God, but then there's the very spirit of God that shows us how to live. I mean, have you ever been able to do something and you were just kind of logically going down A, B, C, and you got to B and God said no D instead of C? Isn't that cool when God does that? You know, well, I would have never picked D. And God says, but I did. This is what is happening here. He said, Peter, when you answered that question that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you didn't answer this with just human intellect. This was spiritually revealed to you in a way that sometimes actually opposes fleshly thinking. Have you ever had your spirit say one thing and your flesh say the other thing? <laughs> in the flesh, it sounded logical. And yet the spirit kept on saying, no, you do this. For example, there's sometimes that tithing comes with great joy. The Bible says to give joyfully. And there are times that you can maybe write out your giving to the church or a tithe or something like that. You can do it joyfully. And then there's going to be other times in your life that you're going, you know, i got five bills that I don't know how I'm going to pay for. And logically, this doesn't, God, I think that church has enough. So logically, you're seeing one thing. And then the Spirit of God says, no, I want you to do this to, to bring you joy to, so that you can live in obedience. That's just one of many, many examples that we have in our life where we can have a logical thought and a spiritual thought, and they're not always congruent. In fact, in many times, they will be wrestling with one another and opposing one another. Now, you would think that that in our minds that if we think spiritually, that we would pick that over thinking fleshly. But how many of you last week, let's just take last week as an example. Let's just take Thursday as an example. How many of you said, I, Pastor Bobby, I, I was able to think 100% spiritually on Thursday? And there really were not any combating fleshly thoughts. How many of y'all would raise your hand and say, okay, I was able to do this for that one day? None of us. And so here's the challenge. Take the matter of forgiving others. The Bible is very, very pronounced. To forgive as you have been 
forgiven. Okay, this, this is the call of Christ. So in, in, on, as we kind of have relationships with one another, the Bible says you forgive as to the same measure that you've been forgiven. So it's pretty black and white what Jesus has said. But how many of you wanting to be obedient to Christ, wanting to forgive others as you, as you have been forgiven, and you started out in that measure, and then all of a sudden the person that you were to forgive all of a sudden had an attitude that really was much more prideful and really wasn't one of those that was kind of surrendering on their own. And all of a sudden you felt a pullback. Now, did the word of God change? Did God's call upon your life to forgive others as you've been forgiven? Did that change? No, all that changed was all of a sudden you had one thought when you were thinking spiritually, and now you have a competing thought. Why? Because, you know, they never did admit that they were wrong. And they never did take responsibility that they did something that was wrong. So all of a sudden, the flesh comes out, spiritual flesh. And for Christians, this is our life until God calls us home, that we are going to have to battle with our fleshly thoughts, and sometimes they will be very logical, and the spiritual leadership that God has given us and the spiritual mindset that he's called us to. Now, let me ask you, Can your mind think either of these ways, spiritually or fleshly? Okay, correct. Can they think both at the same time? No. And this is what we really see pointed out. This is what I really want you to hold on today. Because this invitation from Christ, this call from Christ... It's not that we're not going to wrestle with these things, not that we don't feel a pull between the two, but that we can't not think of both at the same time. We're either going to think spiritually or we're going to think fleshly. It's going to be one or the other. I'm kind of an accountant in mind. Numbers make sense to, to me. And so a lot of my illustrations in my mind are a ledger. This side of the ledger, that side of the ledger. I just think that way. And so I can imagine at the end of the day, if I just kind of was processing back in my day, flesh Spirit, and I can only imagine, embarrassingly, how those actions and thoughts of my life would measure out for any day, any period of that day, or any hour of that day. But you cannot think both ways at the same time. Why? Because it takes two entirely different ways to, to think. In, in this case, two different ways to define forgiveness. One is, okay, you better be responsible if I'm going to forgive you. So I'm waiting for you to do something before I forgive you. The, the call of Christ, hey, because I have been forgiven, even though it wasn't from this person, and this is not the one that, that has offended me, Christ has forgiven me, and so I just automatically now, because of that, now forgive this other person. Two entirely ways of processing this relationship. Now, that you just don't think that this is Bobby's kind of thinking. Does Scripture say that? Is this what this is all about? I believe so. I'll leave it up to you for to interpret. But look at verses 18 and 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I could preach a whole series just on those verses. They're full, full, full of just great, great, great things there. But is Jesus in these things, is he speaking spiritually or fleshly in these 
verses. Spiritually. He's talking about, okay, he's talking about kingdoms existing. He's talking about a spiritual nature. And, and so Peter defined his answer of who, who do you say that I am? Peter answered spiritually, and now Christ responds and says, okay, this was revealed to you spiritually, and this is where he begins to give a spiritual answer. And this is where Matthew gives us a little bit more of that whole picture than Luke did. Luke shares with us about the impending death of Christ. Now Christ said, okay, these things are going to happen. In fact, in, in Mark Gospel, it says that he spoke these things plainly to the disciples. And he begins to tell them that he will die. And he'll die on a cross. And he will be buried. And on the third day, he will rise again. Again, in Mark's gospel, it says, and he spoke these things plainly. In other words, they really weren't confused by the words. What they couldn't do is they couldn't grasp the fullness of that. Why? Because we think two different ways, guys. There's a fleshly part of us, a human part of us, and there's a spiritual part of us. And when we hear something like that, we're either going to take it through the the venue, the view of the spiritual, or we're going to take it in the venue of the human in the flesh. Does that make sense? So Jesus says the same thing, and how did they take that? Well, we begin to, to, to see, look what he said, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Almost mirrors perfectly what is said in Luke 9, 22. But then he adds something. Matthew 16, 22. Luke doesn't mention this. Matthew does. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Number one, I've always been amazed at that verse. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus Christ? You're his disciple. You know, he, he's your boss, he's your commander, he's all this. Even if you don't get the whole Messiah part, if it, even if you don't grasp that part entirely, you know, they know, I mean, they left everything to follow him. And, and yet, now that he's confronted with this, Peter thinks, spiritually or fleshly? Fleshly. Well, wait, wait, guys, this is the guy that just seconds ago, just seconds ago, a couple breaths ago, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Fleshly or spiritually? Spiritual. Jesus even says, look, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Only the Spirit of God did. So he's thinking very, very spiritually. One breath later, Jesus says, I'm going to have to die and I'm going to have to be buried. He said, <laughs> Bobby's paraphrase. Okay, Bobby's paraphrase. Peter responds, not on my watch. This makes no sense. There's a part of this humanly, logically, I will commend Peter because I think that it kind of seemed heroic. I'll die for you. Hey, to get to you, Jesus, if these chief priests and these elders are coming, they're going to have to go through me. And I really do think that Peter meant that. I think that he would have died that moment, folks, for the cause of Christ. What he believed as he interpreted these things, he just didn't get surrender yet. He didn't see that victory came through the cross. He saw the cross as surrender and defeat. 
And I promise you, in your Christian life and in my Christian life, there's our struggle. Because sometimes when he says, you forgive because you've been forgiven, not because they deserve forgiveness, I struggle. Why? Because that fleshly part says, well, they didn't even say they were sorry. They wouldn't even admit that they were wrong. And yet God says, no, through the cross, through that death, through that giving of self, that surrender, Bobby, is that you're going to have victory. I'm going to give you victory through that death of yourself. Folks, that doesn't make any sense to me if the flesh is coming in and this person, as I go to apologize to them, has this, well, it's about time you came and apologized. Those are fighting words for me, where I come from. What? Man, you're talking about a back getting bowed up and ready to go. This is our life. This is our life as Christians. The fleshly, logical, human part. We hope that it would just die and stay in the grave, and yet it comes out every day. And yet we are now filled with the very spirit of the living God to allow us to think like Peter did first. Man, this has been revealed not by flesh and blood, but by the spirit. But what we see here is that Bobby and Ricky And Daniel and Seth and Taylor can think very spiritually one moment and in the next breath, not on my watch. Not on my watch. Why? Because it didn't make sense to Peter. Look at Jesus' response to Peter's response. Matthew 16, 23, but he turned, that is Jesus turned to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Two remarkable truths in this passage. Number one, how quickly Peter goes from a foundational rock to a stumbling rock, a a, a foundational block. Because he said, okay, uh, upon this statement... Now, he's not building his church on Peter, okay? That's not the theology here. There's only one cornerstone, and his name is Jesus Christ. Okay, so he is the cornerstone. But it's this kind of faith, it's this kind of belief that he said, I will build my church on this kind of belief that I am the Christ, basically the gospel. So he goes and he gets... Kind of, you know, Peter, what a great answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Only the Spirit of God did. And he gets this great flesh. This is what I'm going to build my church upon. This gospel truth. This hope that Christ is all. And in the next breath, verse 23, in the ESV, it calls it a hindrance. Does anybody else have another version and you have a different word that is used there? Offense. I think the King James says offense also. Anybody else have a different word? An offense? A hindrance? A stumbling block? The Greek word there is scandalon. Now what does that sound like in an English version? Scandalous. Scandal. Something has gone really wrong here. And that's exactly where we get our word scandal. 
is this Greek word, the scandalous. Jesus says, you're a scandal to me. You're a stumbling block. He went from a, a foundational block of belief to a stumbling block. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that kind of scares my heart a little bit, guys. That I could breathe out such truth one moment and then just as quickly because of my own logic and because of my own lack of surrender to the things of God that I can become a stumbling block, not only to myself, but to those that are around me. Isn't that amazing? In a matter of seconds, Peter goes from thinking spiritually to thinking fleshly. He says, and Jesus says it, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Human terms, this made sense. Not on my watch. They're going to have to go through me to get to you, Jesus. That's really actually pretty heroic. But it's not the gospel. And there's many times that I'm going to think that I'm doing something heroic. And the very Spirit of God says, Bobby, you're a stumbling block. Because you're taking that as a matter of personal pride. You're being, you're trying to be a man. And I say, you surrender right there. And you forgive as you've been forgiven. Wow. Remember what we said before. How quickly we can pivot from one thought to another. From thinking spiritually to thinking fleshly. But we cannot think them both at the same time. And this demonstrates how that can happen. And it usually goes in that direction too, from, from kingdom to earthly, that, that maybe we come and we hear a sermon or maybe we've had a, a time in the word in the morning and we're thinking spiritually. I know that a lot of my discipleship with my guys is early in the morning. So at 5.15 in the morning, tomorrow morning at 5.15, we're going to hit it at the Waffle House under the inspiration of some really good, you know, food there. And we're going to think spiritually. And what time frame do you want to put on it, brother, before 5.15 we dismiss at 6, before kingdom thinking becomes Bobby and Nick thinking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's not that we can't go from earthly thinking to kingdom thinking. It can't, it's not that we can't go that way. But a lot of times when we're under the inspiration of God's spirit because of the power of his word, because of the promise of his word, we get this and we kind of get a glimpse of it. And then all of a sudden the reality of our human logic kind of comes back. For example, that whole forgiveness. I need to forgive much because I've been forgiven. Ah, but they haven't said, look at their attitude. Man, they're not worth forgiving. Boom, boom, pivot, pivot. If you've ever played basketball, you got the ball. You can move, but you got to pivot. You got to keep one foot and you got to start moving. You start pivoting back and forth. And in our human minds and our human spirits, guys, we pivot all the time. So the first thing is, this can quickly happen to go from spiritual thinking to our fleshly thinking very, very quickly. Second truth, and then we'll close this morning. Taking up the cross daily means that we must place our focus on the spiritual kingdom daily. Let me ask you a, a theological questions. A question. Do you believe that there are two kingdoms existing right now? And I would define that as an earthly, fleshly, 
I can touch it, you know, kind of kingdom, the human kingdom. And is there a spiritual kingdom that's just as real? Is there a spiritual kingdom in this room? I would hope the answer to that would be yes. <laughs> yeah. Can you see that? I've never seen God. I've seen God work. I've been influenced by his spiritual kingdom, but I've never seen it. And so there's these two kingdoms, one that is really seen and tangible and you kind of get it. It means it, it seems, uh, seems logical. And the other one that's sometimes it's going to seem a little bit illogical. But would you agree this morning that the Bible teaches that there are two kingdoms, that two kingdoms exist? Okay, if given that, and we see this in verse 23. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus demonstrates this. This isn't Bobby's thought. This is scripture. They both exist, but you can only focus on one at a time. Sherry, uh, can you show that first? What is that? Just yell it out. Okay, that's why you're a duck rabbit. Okay, it's a rabbit duck or it's a duck rabbit. Okay. How many of y'all see the rabbit? Maybe I'll see the duck. Okay. Andrea, I'm sorry, I'm up here. Can you see the rabbit if you just kind of change your focus a little bit? If you see the ears going back that way and the Okay, now you see it. So you saw the duck first, but now you see the rabbit. For everybody who saw the rabbit first, can you see the duck? Both exist, don't they? Can you see both at the same time? You have to change your focus. You can, can you quickly pivot back? Rabbit, duck, duck, rabbit, rabbit, duck. You can go back and forth really quick. But you have to do something. You have to change your focus. All of a sudden you have to go, okay, no, that was the, oh, okay, no, I have to, oh, this is the bills. No, it's the ears. And I have to change my focus. Go to the next one. These are famous ones that have been used throughout history. How many of y'all see the young lady? How many of y'all see the older lady, the mature lady? <laughs> How many of y'all can see both when you change your focus? Okay. You change your focus. Can you see both at the same time? This was a little bit harder. It's not quite as obvious. Uh, if you see this kind of curve, that's right. If you want to see the older lady, this is her nose, her eye, her chin. See the older lady? If you want to see the young lady, there's her eyelash, there's her nose, there's her cheekbone, there's her ear. Do you see that? She has on a big hat, and she has black hair there, and there's her eyelash, her nose, her cheekbone, and her chin. Do both exist? It's all a matter of perspective. It's all a matter of view. Last one, a really easy one. Which, what do you see? How many of y'all see the vase? How many of y'all see the face or profiles? Yeah. Can you see both? Okay. Yes, I'm not trying to be silly. I'm trying to be instructive. Both exist, but and they even exist at the same time. But you can't see both at the same exact time. You have to change your glance, your view, in order to see one. You can pivot back and forth really, really quickly. This is the Christian life, guys. 
until heaven, then there will only be a spiritual view. We'll be perfected in every way. But until that day, until our last breath, when God takes us home, we will live in a world where we're going to be able to see this, but we're also going to be able to see this through this very spirit and the word of God. And we can quickly pivot back and forth. That's why the Christian life seems like a roller coaster at times. Days of high encouragement, days of deep discouragement. And I thought God was just always the same, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is, but the Christian life isn't. Why? Because of this vulnerability. Look at verse 26. Jesus kind of wraps this up into a, a, a poignant meaning. Hey, there's two kingdoms here, Peter. And I just told you, I got to go die. And this is God's will. I'm thinking spiritually because this is God's call upon my life as the son. I will go die on a cross for the sins of the man. And, and, and I will rise again on the third day to give victory over sin, death, and the grave. And then in verse 26... He kind of puts it back to real life. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return his soul? He said, is this kingdom thinking? This is a kingdom matter. You can gain your whole soul, and, and I mean your whole uh, life, and it can seem logical and right and in order and all this, but, but if you lose your soul, man, what have you lost? You've, you've really lost something far, far, far greater. He points out, the wrestling match between these two kingdoms. So let's wrap it up and tie it back to surrender. Last week we say you cannot properly define biblical surrender, Christian surrender, until you define who Christ is. I'm convinced of that. Who do you say that I am? And if Jesus is just a great teacher, if he's just kind of my buddy, my friend... I'm not going to surrender, but if he is the very son of the living God, he is the Messiah of the world that I need because of my sin, and this is what estranges me from a holy God, when I begin to see Christ for who he really is, then surrender is going to come a little bit more supernaturally, not naturally, but supernaturally. Why? Because I've cleared up in my mind who Christ is. But here's the second question. What kingdom will you live for? Do you see the difference in living for two different kingdoms? One that is temporary. One that is eternal. That's what he's saying in verse 26. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? He loses his soul. He said there's two kingdoms. What kingdom are you living for? And we will never be able to surrender in our lives, truly surrender, really come to a point of surrender in our lives until we get these two questions biblically defined and biblically answered in our lives. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God, you have made me for eternity, not just for temporary times. And so, God, will you equip me? Will you fill me? Will you inspire me to live for a kingdom that lasts forever? And so I go to this ungrateful friend and I say, I forgive you. Well, it's about time you came over here and said something that was your fault. I forgive you because Christ has forgiven me. makes no logical human sense. It makes all kinds of eternal spiritual sense. This is what surrender is. This is what Christ has invited us to. This is the cross. 
that we take up daily, the way of Christ. And he's already smoothed that pathway. He's already gone that way. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have never called us to go somewhere where you have not led, equipped, supplied, and fortified. And so, Father, to to live this life, we cannot do it apart from your spirit. And so you equipped us with your spirit. We could not live this life apart from the truth of your word, so you have equipped us with your word. And we could not live this life apart from the fullness of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so you gave us that as a gift of your spiritual blessing and grace. So, Father, will you let this next simple song really be the motivation of our hearts and our lives, Father? My eyes so want to focus on the temporary, to use logic, to use my own reasoning, and yet you've called me to think like Christ. Today, Father, for this pastor, for these people, for this church, Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face so the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We love you, Father. And we pray this in the hope that is Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.